I must have been 11 or 12 years old. And it was probably 5, 6 p.m. at a time where things were slowing down. Everyone was going back to their dorms. And a coach came in and said, um, can you please go out to stadium court? And I go out to stadium court where usually that's off limits at this time. And and the lights were on and it was like real prime time. Meanwhile, we're in the middle of Florida <laughs> and I see these businessmen in suits um, kind of on the sidelines. And I see the main coach of the academy, Nick Boletari, who's, you know, who's an, an iconic figure. And he's like, oh, come, you know, come meet Maria. Um, she's she's a prospect. Um, you know, she's a prodigy. And I remember leaving that 30 minutes later, going back to my dorm as just me you know, this little girl in her racket and thinking, huh, I like being the one that they called upon to get on center court and to showcase the talent of the academy. Hey, everyone. Welcome to No Limits. I'm your host, Rebecca Jarvis. And if you're a frequent listener, really appreciate it. Thanks for sticking with us. If you're new, welcome. Each week, we are talking to one woman. We're going deep into her story. These are women across all industries who are playing at the top of their game. And we're looking beyond the resume. We're looking at the decisions along the way, the trade-offs, the pivotal moments that have shaped their careers and their lives, the tough choices that, you know what, aren't always obvious. Sometimes you have two options in life and they may both look great, or they might both look bad. And these women have been there. So whether you're looking for advice or you just want to hear a good story, you've come to the right place. Okay, No Limits, uh, we have an incredible woman with us today. She turned professional at the age of 14. Crazy. She's crazy. She won Wimbledon at 17 years old. She's been ranked number one in the world by the World Tennis Association five separate times. She is a New York Times bestselling author in 2017 for her book, Unstoppable, My Life So Far. She is founder and CEO of Sugar Pova, which is a candy line we've been eating um, the brand new. They're called Quirky Pink Grapefruit. And they're that we've been passing along. <laughs> she brought goodies for me, and I've been um, well, I've been sharing some of them with yes, her. Thank, thank you. you. Um, she's an investor. She's appearing on this season's Shark Tank, and for eleven years, she was the highest paid female athlete between two thousand six and twenty sixteen. Maria Sharapova, welcome to No Limits. Thank you for having me. I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan as well. And you have you have just a fascinating backstory. You moved here at six. I did. From Russia? Yes. I was born in Siberia. Um, actually, my family came from Belarus, um, where my parents met. And um, when Chernobyl hit, my mother was pregnant with me during the time. And so my parents fled and moved to Siberia. Happened to be born there um, because of the circumstances. When I was two years old, they were tired of Siberia. It was a little too cold Why? for everyone. <laughs> um, and we moved to Sochi, which is a beautiful resort um, in the south and part of Russia. Um, and I lived there till I was six years old. And then we moved to Florida to develop this crazy tennis dream of mine. How wild was that? So you had the dream at, yes. at age six. Well, I had this incredible focus of hitting this yellow fuzzy ball endlessly. And I think the one quality that um, really stood out was that I was just able to do it repetitively. And I was able to focus and concentrate and and kids at that age around me um, were focused on so many other things and they got tired of, you know, working on a forehand or a backhand and they 
couldn't didn't know the difference between their left foot and right foot. And I was like, no, I, I want to find out how to hit the ball over the net. And I think that that set me apart and um, made people around me notice that I, I had a particular talent for this. What do you think it was inside of you at such a young age? Were your parents, did they put pressure on you or was it something coming from inside? Well, my father um, played, he played hockey. I mean, winter sports were very popular in, in Russia and more from, you know, just the fact of the Winter Olympics dominating um, in Russia. So a lot of a lot of uh, people all around Russia preferred winter sports, and he was just a big fan of hockey. So tennis was just not in no one's background. My mother danced um, ballet for a little bit, but it wasn't like it wasn't a sport for her. Um, so there was no real experience in terms of tennis. It was just more of like a focus-driven passion for me. Wow. Was it the color? The yellow, you said the yellow fuzzy ball was a focus. It was a yellow fuzzy ball that I've seen for many years since yeah. I was four years old. And your mom, I read, was she, did she stay back while you came yes, here for exactly. three years? Two years. Two so, years. Um, yeah. So the first two years when my father and I moved to the United States, um, it was really just this journey um, of this little girl and this dream and her father that was, you know, we came to the to America with only $700 and while he was trying to find ways to make money, um, I was at the big sporting academy in Florida, just getting better and improving. Um, so those years were incredibly challenging, but a big learning curve in terms of maturity, of understanding. You know, you learn about your surroundings. You're in a completely new culture. I didn't know the language when I landed in America. So I learned that very fast by being around so many children. Um, but it also like, you know, I'm I'm 32 years old now, and I look back at those days, and I I reflect on those challenges, and I see how close my parents I and I are to each other till this day, and maybe that's also because I'm an only child, but it's it's so special. You know, you go through these ups and downs in life, and to be at the stage in my life and to consider them my best friends, I think, is one of the most meaningful um, chapters, and one of the reason I wrote the autobiography. It really speaks to their commitment to you as much as your feelings towards them. It also, I look at you and and your story, it seems like you felt responsibility from an early age. Well, I knew, I guess my responsibility was the knowledge of knowing that I was there for a reason. I was definitely not there to do something else because from 6 a.m. until I went to sleep, um, which was very early. I had an early curfew, like eight um, eight thirty. Um, that was all I focused on and all I did. And the naps that I took in the afternoon were based on waking up and having the energy to do it in the afternoon. Um, it was because sleep I was, with a purpose. Exactly, sleep with a purpose. You wake up and you go out there and you compete against all the other kids that are at this academy. You learn from all these incredible coaches which in Russia at the time, tennis wasn't really on the map unlike it is now. So being in Florida, being in this environment, like, yes, all of it was it, it was challenging and hard. But from a young girl's perspective, I mean, this was amazing. When you started getting good, really, really good. How were people treating you? Was it was it obvious at that moment that you were going to be something that this was going to be more than just a pretty good Right. Well, this is a funny story um, that I talk about that I reflect on in the book is the first 
day or evening when I noticed that tennis is more than just a sport, that it's a business. And so I was was boarding at the academy and I remember I must have been 11 or 12 years old and it was probably 5, 6 p.m. at a time where things were slowing down. Everyone was going back to their dorms and a coach came in and said, "Um, can you please go out to stadium court? And I go out to stadium court where usually that's off limits at this time and and the lights were on and it was like real prime time. Meanwhile, we're in the middle of Florida <laughs> and I see these businessmen in suits um, kind of on the sidelines. And I see the main coach of the academy, Nick Boletari, who's, you know, who's an, an iconic figure. And he's like, oh, come, you know, come meet Maria. Um, she's she's a prospect. Um, you know, She's a prodigy. She's been here for a few years. And I see these men in suit and ties and I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to showcase my tennis. And here I am representing an academy in front of these businessmen. Oh, okay, there's something else on the line here. And I remember leaving that 30 minutes later, going back to my dorm. It was just me, you know, this little girl in her racket and thinking, huh, I like being the one that they called upon to get on center court and to showcase the talent of the academy. So that was the first moment where I was like, Hmm, I like the lights. I like the center <laughs> stage. Like, I want to be in that position more often. It almost sounds like a movie. It kind of is, because for the example, you know, what what my parents sacrificed in our journey to yes. get to America and all, all the success, like, on paper, it all, it all went uphill. But right. there were so many twists and turns. And for the one example that it did work out to get to this place of where I am and speaking to you— there are thousands of examples for people that it didn't work out. And it's those sad stories that we never get a chance to hear about. Well, and I'm sure along the way for you, there were moments where clearly you're a prodigy and you're getting this opportunity. But eight days later, something isn't working out and you're exactly. imagining and you're wondering, oh, my gosh, did I lose the opportunity? Right. Well, that's also the importance of having the right people around you. And I've been so, so fortunate. And I speak about the relationships Um, that I've had in my career, and more importantly, that bond with your parents, because they are, you know, the the people that are the closest to you always have your back. And Mm -hmm. you've heard it so many times, but there's such value in that. And there's such depth in that. And, you know, they can annoy you and they can say things that you're like, oh, I just want to get off the phone or, oh, this is like a family holiday. And I'm so, but this is your core. And the importance of that and the relevance of that um, is proven and so I, I listened to them a lot. And my father was, you know, obviously he wanted me to be number one and he wanted me to win Grand Slams. But it was interesting the way he approached it. He never actually said that I had to be a Wimbledon champion or that I didn't. Mm-hmm. It was just, OK, today we wake up and we get better. And his whole theory was that you string a few days together and you have a great week and you have a great tournament. And that was the philosophy that I, I still that I still have. I like the fact that you talk about it as a business because it is a business and the idea that you surround yourself with people that you can trust. How did you find those people? I would imagine, obviously, Mm -hmm. your parents played a role in that. But when you were new to all of this, and I I think that's a very universal thing, people are new to lots of different situations and it's hard to figure out who you can trust, who's going to help you. People move around a lot. Yeah. What I find in business today, and I started understanding that early on and some of the partnerships that I that I had and I mean examples of of even just design like within brands like a a Nike um, when you're designing collections you see 
you know, you see the movement and the flow of people. Like you work with one team for a few seasons and then, you know, you build that trust and that comfort level. And then in a few seasons, you have a whole new team. And it's like, how do you build the consistency with different people? How do you build the trust? And you know, I, I think as we know in life and in business, trust is everything. How do you decide then which things to do? You're in your Nike today as well. I am. Which I'm just getting on the plane. So <laughs> wanted to be comfortable. You, it looks it looks very chic for comfort. Thank you. How do you decide which brands to affiliate yourself with and which to say no? That's not going to work for me. All right. So I've had the same manager since I was 11 years old, and I think that's very very lucky and very fortunate. And we work together and we have for for so many years now and i think our our vision is aligned and our paths align and he has my best interest and i i can trust him with everything um in the beginning he was just coming out of college he was just doing visas for my father and i to go play <laughs> tournaments in europe and then he goes from that to doing my nike contract I, I know i know a guy <laughs> He can do this. I love stories like that, though, because I think a lot of the time uh, for me when it comes to hiring decisions and who's going to be on your team, loyalty and trust are as important as what's on somebody's resume. Absolutely. And if it's between the two, I'm always going to go for someone I trust who I believe has the ability to learn. Yes. I I don't see it as a deficit that they don't have the full experience on day one. So I I take that back to... um a small internship I had with um, Adam Silver, who runs the NBA. Yeah. And it was so inspiring and interesting to see the the cohesive way in which he brings everyone that works for him together. And everyone's opinion on a Monday morning, they get in an office, they have this big group meeting, and everyone, he actually doesn't speak very much, maybe a little bit in the end, but it it just gives so much, you know, every, it's such a big organization but they come out of that meeting and they're like, oh, we're we're pretty big time. You know, we were in that <laughs> meeting and, and we spoke more than Adam did. <laughs> he gives them that chance, that opportunity, which is so, so cool. You founded Sugar Pova, which are the treats that we're enjoying in here. You founded that in 2012. Yes. With a $500,000 investment. investment. Yes. First of all, what made you think candy of all things? So crazy, right? <laughs> well, I mean, I get, it, it's working, right? It's it's 2019 and it's yes. still around. You, yes. you figured it out. Well, and I'm still in the process of there's so many things to learn about it. Well, first off, I, I've always had a sweet tooth. And ever since I was a young girl, I always wanted a piece of chocolate or a lollipop. You were um, allowed to eat that while you were training? Yeah. If I had a really good week of training or my coach said I you trained extremely hard. quirky pink grapefruit. Good job, Maria. Well, at the time when I was young, I remember it was the coconut bounty bar and the chupa chup lollipop. So those memories came rolling in. And it was actually a time when I had shoulder surgery and I recognized that tennis would not last for forever. Mm. And I think as you you have this one thing going on in your life and yes. this one career path it's as if you're never going to make shifts and turns and I recognized at that time that wow I don't know if I'm going to ever come back from the shoulder injury it does turn out that I did come back and I'm still competing Um, but at the time it was like I want to take all the experience that I've had in business and I want to apply it to sugar pova and learn and and I came in as a very young female entrepreneur I was 21 22 years old when this idea hit me and I started with no experience in distribution no experience in retail goods. I love the design aesthetic. So my first like 
my first point of interest was designing the bags and coming up with the creative and the logo and the lips. And that till this day, people recognize and see as, wow, that's so consistent with where you started. And that is such a differentiating point of view when we see it in stores around the world. I hear it a lot, though, from people in your position. You touched on it a little bit. This idea that you're representing all these other brands. You're doing great things by being the face of all these other brands. Mm-hmm. And and somewhere along the way, you're kind of like, huh, I think I could do this. I, there's, yeah. I'm selling other people's products. Why not have my own, too? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Vacation starts with VA. Whether you're feeling beachy, mountainy, or every E in between, you'll find all that you love all in one trip to Virginia. Start yours at Virginia.org. This idea that you're representing all these other brands, you're doing great things by being the face of all these other brands. Mm-hmm. And and somewhere along the way, you're kind of like, huh, I think I could do this. I, there's, yeah. I'm selling other people's products. Why not have my own, too? Was interest, The difference is that I actually didn't say, I think I can do this. It was more like, I think I want to be a little more competitive with this. I want to be the one that's making more decisions, better decisions that can maybe benefit me in the long run. So being the face of a campaign was terrific. I designed shoes for Cole Haan um, for almost like six seasons, um, which was fascinating and so interesting and really my first step in fashion. So I learned, I learned a lot from different people in different fields, and I was able to apply all those great things in my experience into in Sugar Pova. What's the weirdest thing you've learned about business? Wow. Um, that there's so many steps along the way and mm. that no no step is too small or too big, no matter who you are, no matter if you're just starting in a company, if you're a junior in the company, if you're a senior CEO, like the smallest thing can be so important. The handwritten note, the appreciation, the getting the consumer to try the product, um, carrying it in your bag, making sure that you never know who you run into, like networking, finding the right this people for your This is your, your business brand. card right here. It really is my business card. Yeah, well, it does have my, my name <laughs> on it on the back. So, yeah, there's no no task that is too small or too big. What did you learn from being on Shark Tank? Oh, what a great experience. Um, well, I, I've watched Shark Tank um, for so many years. I watched all the previous 10 seasons. So when I got asked to be a guest judge, it's so interesting because my philosophy was when I was starting Sugar Pova, I was always thinking about, oh, if I ever do go on Shark Tank and pitch Sugar Pova, <laughs> what would I say? What would my numbers be? And I remember the first few years I was like, oh, my God, my company would have no chance. I mean, the numbers that I'd be presenting to them, they would kill me. And now little by little, as I was thinking, I was like, oh, well, we're, we're growing. I think this would be a good time. So when they approached me to be a guest judge, I was completely blown away because I'd never thought of being an investor on the show. Um, And I will say that it was one of the best experiences I've had in terms of TV because it was it was so real. Mm -hmm. It's your own money. You're investing your own money. Um, The entrepreneurs were so inspiring. I loved engaging with the female entrepreneurs 
It's really interesting how, I don't know if it's the world that we live in right now, but there's a real connection that's a, a deeper connection than maybe a few years ago to a female entrepreneur and hearing their story and not just about the business, but how they got there and what they did to get here today. Yeah, I think you realize the challenges and there's also more of an inclination towards vulnerability and being real yes. and and being willing to like show the battle scars as opposed to hiding them and having to put forth that perfect image. Absolutely. You definitely I have a sense that there's I mean in sport you're always you you know we're very heroic we can be seen as heroic but at the end of the day like we're also very open to being vulnerable yeah. and entrepreneurship should be the same way. Like there's no reason to hide the tough moments. I think that's part of your part of the scars that help you grow to where we can get potentially. Um, so to see those women on the show and to really understand, understand them as women, the challenges that they go through their history and then the product, the creations that they have was really fascinating. Yeah, it just kind of dawned on me as you were speaking, this idea that in tennis, if you're having a terrible day, oh. you can't run from that. Oh, Everybody no. is going to see that no, unfold. You're gonna, no, 20,000 people will see it live, but then the other hundreds of thousands <laughs> will see it on, on video. And they'll tweet you about it. No. <laughs> they definitely will. So what what do you do? Do you have a mental uh, practice that you apply in that experience? So I know that at the end of every single day that my actions and who I am as a person and the voice that I carry and the professionalism that I go about in my life on and off the court. Um, that's what's relevant and that's what matters. And nothing else really changes. I, I, I do think that in society, people will always people will always have a thing to say, whether it's from a media perspective, a press perspective, a headline, um, or just a social media comment. People will always have the time, the 20, 30 minutes in their day to go on the social media and give their positive or negative feedback. And so I think if you can separate that, separate that you you recognize, OK, there are people that are not going to like the way that you play or that you go out on the court and you grunt. But hey, <laughs> if that's the worst thing, like if that's the worst thing that they can say about the way that you play on the court, I will take it. <laughs> I love that. Um, you've also, something that you've written about 2016 at the Australian Open, yep. you announced in a press conference that you had failed a drug test because mm -hmm. of a medication you'd been taking for years for health reasons. Um, it had recently been added to the list of banned substances and you wrote about this. Yes. You've spoken openly about it. Um, the ban was ultimately reduced from two years to 15 months. The court ruled that there was no intent to violate the new regulations how in that moment, what was going through your head, this dream that you had come to the United States, right. lived without your mother for two years and probably killed yourself and not done a lot of fun things throughout your childhood in order to achieve? Right. Certainly painful, especially in the beginning parts of it. Um, I think mostly because of the uncertainty at the beginning. I didn't know when I could come back to compete again. Um and then just working through the, the lawyers and going into the, the trial and and all of that. So that was I think that was like the most challenging part. But I really took upon it because, you know, my, my career was on the line and I wanted to do. And I, I think from the first day on, I did the right thing. And I think sitting here, you know, a few years later, um, there's no other way that I would have wanted to go about it. I was 
straight and upfront and honest and very vulnerable. We know we just spoke about vulnerability about it. And it was a, a such an interesting time in my career because it was also a time that I was considering maybe stepping down from the sport and thinking mm-hmm. a little bit about family and business. Um, and then it kind of like prolonged my career in a way of when I did get back because I, I viewed the sport in a very different way. I viewed my life and my fans and it from a very different perspective. So it certainly changed and in some ways it was like a, a blessing and opened to my it opened my eyes to what I had achieved and the amount of people that respected what I did. That stood up for you in yeah. one of your darker moments. Yeah, it really, really did. What has been the biggest challenge along the way? Was that the biggest challenge or, or something else? I think the biggest challenge was being away from the game for that period of time. I think for maybe physically I think when you're not competing and you're not playing so much of your muscle memory, you lose a bit. Um, So in some ways, like I was resting some parts of my body that was injured, but then in other ways I was not doing this. I was not competing every single day. What did you do every day during that time? um, I went to Harvard and took a few classes (laughs) during the summer. That's what everyone in that situation (laughs) would obviously do. I, um, I worked on sugar pova consistently um, I was investing in a few different businesses. So I just, I had time and then I got to spend like holidays at home, which was such a treat for me. I love, what did it's you learn at Harvard? Things. What was your favorite thing you learned at Harvard? Um, so I studied global strategic management and then I started, uh, studied leadership and, uh, leadership was fascinating because we had one of a few of the days we had a theater coach come in and, It was interesting to see all the other participants that haven't done a lot of public speaking, that haven't been in the front stage to really see the transformation. And even though I've been I do a lot of press conferences and um, a lot of public appearances and I'm around a lot of people, um, I don't know, I just I felt like after that, that whole day of learning from a theater coach, I felt like I presented myself a lot better and I had you know, I knew what my expressions were like. I like my whole body, like how much hand movement I was using, <laughs> like small things did like you that. Stop using your, I use my hands a ton. Too. I use my hands so, so much, did they tell but you I think to it's better than not. Much, yeah. I find it. No, weird it was more about story hands. time. It was actually no. They wanted you to be involved because I think when when you do use your hands, you really express how you feel. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would I would encourage to do that more than keep your hands by yourself. <laughs> <laughs> what is the worst advice you've received along the way? Um, worst advice I've received is definitely when people say it's not how you start, um, it's how you finish. And I don't know if I completely agree with that because I think the beginning is so important in, in what we do, the, the thinking, the effort that we put into it. It's like a, a journey before a road trip. Like you have a map, you're planning it out. And if you make a left while well, you're supposed to make a right, I mean, first few minutes are already trouble because you find yourself on the, on the wrong path to where you're going. And that's really kind of how I see how I see my whole career is you have to plan ahead with the right team and the right people and the right frame of mind. And only with that, and it's not guaranteed success, but if you do have a good beginning or a better beginning than an awful one, you have better chances of finishing well. So what do you do when you take the accidental left turn and you should have taken a right? Well, then you shift, then you pivot, but you have to recognize it fast. You know, at least don't let it drag on for too long. You know, don't be preoccupied with other things. Really focus on that on that one thing that you have to do. If it is that journey, focus on it. Maria Sharapova, thanks so much for joining us on No Limits. Thank you for having me. Now let's eat some more sugar pova. Please. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, it's the end of the interview, and that means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our amazing No Limits listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week, we are highlighting Priya Patel Bhakta. She's the founder and president of Ellie. It's one of the fastest growing products in natural yogurt. Here she is to tell you more. Hi, my name is Priya Patel Bhakta. I'm the founder and president of Ellie. We manufacture a variety of cork products, both in snacking cups and in meal cups. And one of my biggest challenges has been introducing something so new to the U.S. market, especially with a a name like Quark that nobody's really heard of before. So we're constantly working on bringing awareness to the products, uh, what they are and how they're better for you. Uh, We make them with no added sugar and nothing artificial. Um, And we hope that next time you're shopping and browsing the yogurt aisle that you stop and give us a try. Thank you. Congratulations, Priya. Wishing you continued success. You can head on over to my Instagram listeners at Rebecca Jarvis if you want to hear more from Priya and how she created her business. Also, if someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week, you can send me those nominations at No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. And finally, a shout out to the team that helps make this happen each and every week. My producer, Taylor Dunn, editor, Brittany Martinez, research assistant, Lane Wynn. Thanks also to ABC Radio, and we'll see you all next week.